I want us to begin this morning um, with a little bit of a test, a little bit of a quiz, not, not, like a, not like a pop quiz, not like a review of anything, a little more like a, like a Facebook personality quiz, except this isn't about what flavor of cheese would your dog be or anything like that. This is a, this is a, a personality quiz that reveals something about the kind of person that you are. Are you ready? This is the question. Only one question is quiz. When you look at this glass, how would you describe what you see? When you, uh, when you look at the glass, relative to the contents within the glass, how would you describe the condition of this glass? Are you an optimist when you look at the glass? Is the glass half full to you? Are you a pessimist? Is the glass half empty? How do you, how do you describe this glass? See, Krista and I, um, we are perfect for each other in so many ways, but this is one of those ways in which Krista and I tend to part ways because when Krista and I look at the world, we see very different things. This is really what we're talking about when we're talking about optimism and pessimism. What do you see when you look at the world? The, the idea that we all look at the same reality, each from our own you know, vantage point or whatever, but we all look at the same reality, but we see things so differently. So I'm like the eternal optimist, right? To the point of naivety and foolhardiness, like I am an optimist. So, you know, recently Krista had uh, surgery on her lungs and we met with the surgeon and the surgeon said, listen, it's about 96% chance of success. If everything goes well, she'll be home from the hospital in five days. It was like he had written my future in my head, we are guaranteed success, and Krista will be home from the hospital in five days. That's what he just told me. Now, it didn't work out that way entirely, but that was kind of my inclination. Look at the glass. It's half full. And you know what? Honestly, if you wait long enough, somebody's probably going to come by and just pour the rest in and fill it right up. Like, that's just how I look at the world. Now, Krista, on the other hand, Krista um, prefers the preparedness that comes from anticipating the worst case scenario. See, I live for the most likely scenario. Krista lives for the worst case scenario. And it's, it's not a criticism because honestly, it can help you prepare. It's, sometimes it can be a more realistic way of looking at the world. But so for her, the surgeon says 96% chance of success. And her instinct is to say, you know, what does that other 4% look like? Because that's pretty much what I got to, you know, prepare for. That's the, that's the way it goes. And so we have these conversations about the most likely scenario versus the worst case scenario. And it's all representative of the fact that when we look at the world, we see things completely differently. And it's true for all of us. And it's at the core of the question that we're exploring this morning as we come back to the gospel of Matthew and, and revisit, starting in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. You have a Bible, you can, you can turn there. The question of what do you see when you look at the world. This is where we pick up the story. In, in Matthew 9, verse 35, it says this. Jesus went through all the towns and villages of Israel, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. This is Matthew's way of summarizing the mission of Jesus. This is what Jesus did with his life. He, we've just spent the last uh, year and a half or more uh, two years almost, exploring Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, which were about the power and authority of Jesus' words, his preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. And, and then 
in the fall, we explored Matthew 8 and 9, which is about the power and authority of Jesus' works, of his deeds, his ability to bring healing and hope and restoration to people's lives. And this is how Matthew summarizes what Jesus was about. On the one hand, he was teaching the good news that God's love was breaking into the world and bringing healing and hope and restoration to people's lives who were hurting and broken and so on. He was bringing joy to their sorrow. He's bringing hope to their despair. He's bringing light to their darkness. He was bringing restoration to their, to their relationships. He was bringing reconciliation with people in God and people in themselves and people in each other and people in the world. And that was Jesus' message, that God is on the move in the world, restoring everything to this vision of love and peace that he always had. And then, in this kind of bit of show and tell, or tell and show, uh, Jesus enacted the kingdom by bringing actual healing to people's bodies and their souls, to their relationships and to their lives as if to say, to like an object lesson, as if to say, this is what it looks like when the kingdom of God breaks into your world. And so it says Jesus was going through Israel, teaching and preaching and healing every disease and sickness. And then in verse 36, it says this, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I've read this text uh, dozens of times in my lifetime. In fact, I, I've preached on this text before, years and years and years ago. I have a whole other sermon on this text. I, I'm very familiar with the context of these verses. And yet, until I was reflecting on these verses for this week's sermon, I, I had never, that simple but profound phrase, had never really jumped out of the text at me before, that Jesus saw the crowds. What do you see when you look at the world? I think for some of us, maybe for many of us, maybe most of the time, when we look at the world, we see opportunity. We see opportunities to meet our needs. We see opportunities to, to reach our goals, to fulfill our desires, to accomplish our agenda. We see opportunities for fun and for friendship and for romance and for significance and for security. And we see opportunities to make our lives the things that we, the lives that we want to live. I think for some of us and for all of us, some of the time, when we look at the world, we see, it's hard to see past our pain, our hurts, our disappointments. We go through life and it's hard to see beyond our loneliness and our bitterness. We, we travel through life and, and it's hard to see past the work stress or the financial stress or the family dysfunction. Or it's hard to get outside of the, the mental battle with mental illness or with addiction. Um, it's hard to see sometimes past our pain. Sometimes when we look at the world and we, and we see beyond ourselves, we're not looking at ourselves, you know, we can see some issues. I don't know, when you look at the world, whether you believe the world is getting better um, or whether the world is getting worse, but 
It's hard to watch the news and not see the issues of, you know, things like ISIS. The chaos that's being created in the Middle East and elsewhere. Um, Ebola. The debate that's going on about gay marriage in the culture and all the hurt that goes along with that. The, the issue of poverty, both local poverty and really extreme global poverty. It's hard not to see the issues. Or, or if you want to spin it more positively, some of us look at the world and we see causes to be involved in. You know, opportunities to walk a mile in her shoes, opportunities to lend $25 to the, the developing world's global poor uh, through kiva.org or opportunities to be involved in the PTA, just opportunities to be involved and to make a difference. What do you see when you look at the world? Because I'll tell you, what, what I read in Matthew chapter nine is that when Jesus looked at the world, what he saw was people. Jesus wasn't looking for opportunity. He wasn't looking at his pain. Jesus wasn't looking at issues or looking for causes. When Jesus looked at the world, he saw people. Now, sometimes we see people. Sometimes I see people. But sometimes when I look at the world and see people, I see people really in one of two categories as either helping or hurting me accomplish my agenda for my life. That's really, people are either assisting me or getting in my way of getting what I want to be done, what I want to get done in my life in the world. Um, it was said of Steve Jobs before he died that um, every friend he ever had went through three phases that if he needed you, he seduced you. Once he had you, he ignored you. And when he was done with you, he rejected you. And I'm sure that that does not only describe Steve Jobs. Sometimes we look at people in terms of the role they play in us accomplishing our agenda. Sometimes when we see people, we see them just as labels. We see them as categories. We judge people and label them and then put them in a box with other people that we judge to be just like them. And then we treat them according to the label, whether that's rich or poor, gay or straight, whether that's Christian or non, whether that's a man or woman, whether that's immigrant or citizen, whether it's white collar or blue collar, old or young, we slap a label on people and then we treat them according to the label. That's not what Jesus did. When Jesus looked at the world, Jesus saw people, real people, genuine people, authentic People with hopes and dreams, with hurts and fears, with disappointments and celebrations. People who were coming from somewhere and going somewhere. People who were something and who were becoming something. When Jesus looked at the world, he saw people. What do you see when you look at the world? Jesus um, saw people, but more than Seeing them, he noticed them. He noticed their stories. He noticed their circumstances. He noticed their situation, their spirit, and their soul. He noticed them. It says that he saw the crowds and that they were harassed and helpless. Those are the two words. The word harassed is the Greek word skulain, and it means uh, to skin an animal that has been slaughtered or to flay something to tear it to ribbons like with a, a, a whip 
Matthew says, when Jesus saw people, he saw the ways in which their lives were being torn to ribbons by their circumstances. What he saw were the ways that they were being beaten and bruised by their situation. (coughs) Excuse me. What Jesus saw when he saw people, what he noticed was the ways in which they were being beaten up by life. They were being harassed and they were helpless. The word is piptane. It comes from the Greek word that means to throw or to throw down. Jesus saw not only the ways that people were being beaten up, he saw the ways that they were being knocked down. He saw the ways that they were being body slammed by their circumstances, the ways in which they'd been knocked down to the mat, that they had fallen and they couldn't get up. Literally, the text refers to people who've been knocked down and cannot get up on their own, who lack the resources, either the internal fortitude and strength or the external support from the community to get back up on their feet again. They were literally helpless. He noticed their story. He noticed their circumstances. He noticed their need. It says they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's why they were in the condition they were in, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It's an ancient Jewish metaphor of the person who becomes the agent of God's love by directing their energy towards caring for and about his people. That was the the shepherd. For those who knew the Old Testament stories, a prophet like Moses was a shepherd. A king like David was a shepherd. The shepherds were the ones who were to protect and to provide. The shepherds were the ones who were to guard and to guide. The shepherds were the ones who were to lead and to liberate. The shepherds were to be the agents of God's love in people's lives, strengthening the weak and healing the sick and bandaging the injured and taking in the strays and searching for the lost. That's what a shepherd did. And what Jesus saw when he looked at the world is he saw people who were being beaten up and knocked down by life because what they needed was a shepherd. What they needed was for somebody to step up to the plate, to stand in the gap and to take responsibility for somebody else's life. To be the care that they needed. The kind of care that Jesus felt when he saw the crowds. It says he had compassion on them. See, it's one thing to see somebody's situation, to notice their issues, right? It's one thing to diagnose what's wrong with somebody, to stand back and kind of clinically and forensically be able to to detect their problems. It's another thing to open yourself up to actually caring, to actually feeling their pain. That's what Jesus did. The word in Greek is splanknon. We get our English word spleen from it. Uh, It means bowels and intestines and guts, everything that resides in this sort of area after the holidays uh, for some of us. There's more that resides. We have more splanknon than we used to. But the reason, (coughs) excuse me, the reason that the ancients used to use the word guts to describe 
uh, emotions, because that's what it really means, a strong emotion. The reason they would describe emotion as coming from the gut instead of coming from the heart like we do is because you feel the strongest and most intense mo- emotion in the gut, right? We, we still talk about this in English, that you have a, a feeling in your gut that it sits in the pit of your stomach, right? You can get knots in your stomach or butterflies in your stomach that all of our strongest and most intense emotions we feel in our gut. And that's what they were trying to say about Jesus. That when he saw the plight of the people and noticed that they were harassed and helpless because there was no one to stand in the gap and take responsibility for their lives. It was to Jesus like a punch in the gut. He felt it in the pit of his stomach. His heart was broken over the brokenness of other people. That's what Jesus was like. He didn't just look, he saw. Some of us have trouble seeing the people around us all the time, seeing our kids some days, or seeing our spouse, even seeing our friends. We have trouble seeing the people around us. We have trouble seeing the guy who works in the next cubicle or the girl who sits at the next desk. We have trouble seeing the kid who works in the drive through window or the old lady sitting beside you at the stoplight. We have trouble seeing the immigrant walking down the sidewalk. We just don't see people. But sometimes when we see people, we have trouble noticing them. Noticing their story, noticing their circumstances, hearing about their journey, acknowledging their hurts and disappointments. And yet even when we notice, sometimes we have trouble caring. Taking the risk to open ourselves up in vulnerability to actually do what Jesus did and to empathize with somebody else, which literally means to enter into somebody's pain, to step into their pain and to absorb it in yourself, in your own person, to take on someone else's pain. That's what Jesus did. He saw the crowds. He noticed that they were harassed and helpless because there was no one to care for them. And he entered into their pain as an act of compassion and he cared for them. But for Jesus, see, compassion always leads to action. It doesn't stop with caring. The word compassion, Splanknon, shows up four more times in the book of Matthew, three times in relation to Jesus, one time metaphorically describing God the Father. And every time the word Splanknon, compassion, appears, what happens next is that somebody's need gets met. Somebody who is sick gets healed. Somebody who is hungry gets fed. Somebody who is in debt gets forgiven. Somebody who is blind gets to see. See, uh, Jesus was someone who didn't just look, he saw, but he didn't just see, he noticed, but he didn't just notice, he cared, but he didn't just care, he did something. That's the way compassion works. And in response to what he saw in the crowds, it says in verse 37, he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus says, guys, take a look all around you. It's happening everywhere. Look people in the eye and see that the harvest is plentiful, there is need, 
everywhere you look. People are ripe and ready for somebody to step in and harvest them. What he means is somebody, the people are ready for somebody to step into their world and be the agent of God's love. To bring healing and hope and loving restoration into the pain and the hurt of their lives. <clears throat> so the harvest is plentiful. But it's the workers that are few. It's interesting to me that for Jesus, somebody for whom compassion always turns into action, that in response to what he saw, what Jesus didn't do was redouble his efforts. He didn't get up earlier in the morning or stay up later at night or take a working lunch so that he could see more people and meet more needs. That wasn't Jesus' response. In fact, the response of Jesus to the need that he saw was to turn to his disciples and say, guys, I can't do this alone. I'm Jesus, and I can't do this alone. I need help. <coughs> we need more people. More people who are willing to not just look, but to see. More people who are willing to not just see, but to notice. More people who are willing to not just notice, but to care. More people who are not just willing to care, but to do something. <clears throat> I'm struggling this morning. Um, to do what I've been doing. To step up to the plate and to tell people about the love of God that's breaking into the world. About how God wants to make them right with him and right with themselves and right with each other. And right with the world but then who aren't just going to tell people about God's healing and hope and new life, but who are going to be God's healing and hope <coughs> and new life in the lives of those who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I'm going to use this half full glass. Now it's half empty. Uh, we need people who are prepared to be the shepherd, to stand in the gap, to strengthen the weak, to bandage the injured, to heal the sick, to look for the strays and to bring the back the lost. We need people who are ready to do what I have done. So he says, go and ask the Lord of the harvest to send more workers into his harvest field. Jesus says, here's step one, time out. He doesn't tell his disciples to rush out there and start meeting needs. He says, step number one, I need you to pray. This is God's world. These are God's people. Those needs are needs that God cares about. This is God's plan and God's agenda. This is God's mission, not any of ours. So the first step in response to the ripe harvest and the need that exists in front of all of our eyes is to get on our knees and to ask the Lord of the harvest to send more workers into the harvest field, to beg God, to plead with God, to implore God, to send people 
to send the right people to the right places at the right time for the right reasons with the right motivations to do the right things in the right community to make people right, to make them right with God and right with themselves and right with each other and right with the world so that all will be right in God's creation. Go and ask the Lord of the harvest to send people. And when you pray, I'm assuming Jesus is gonna say, why don't you begin by asking God to make you the right person. Asking God to make you someone who doesn't just look but sees and doesn't just see, but notices, and doesn't just notice, but cares. And doesn't just care, but does something. A number of years ago, and by a number of years ago, I mean like decades ago, I was a camp counselor at a Christian summer camp. And, uh, I don't know what the director of the camp was thinking. Maybe she was just assuming that because I was only a few years younger that the campers, that I would maybe have some sort of magical relational connect with these teenagers. And so what she did when she assembled the cabin that I was gonna be responsible for was she found uh, the 10 most uh, rebellious, angry, um, rambunctious teenage guys that she could find and gathered them together and put them all in my cabin. That was her gift to me for the week was thanks for volunteering. Lead these unleadable people, half of whom don't want to be here and the half that does want to be here want to be here for all the wrong reason. They're here for the girls and the good times and whatever. That was my assignment that week. I'm going to tell you by halfway through the week, uh, I was fit to be tied. I was ready to kill somebody. These people were 10 of the most aggravating, frustrating teenage boys that I have ever encountered in my entire life, which I assume uh, is a true statement of any group of 10 teenage boys. But these people, because they were my people, were annoying me. They were just ruining my entire week at camp. I had volunteered because I wanted to be able to invest in some teenage guys, have some meaningful conversations, walk with, through with some folks through some tough stuff, maybe help people make some significant choices with regards to faith and life. And so that was my vision for the week, to do all of that uh, in a bathing suit down by the beach. That was, that was why I had volunteered. And these guys had single-handedly ruined my entire camp experience. By halfway through the week, I was just angry. I was ready to kill somebody. And then partway through the week, as I was reading the Bible, which is what you do at a Christian summer camp, I stumbled across Jeremiah chapter eight, starting in verse 18, and it says this. My grief is beyond healing. My heart is broken. Listen to the weeping of my people. It can be heard all across the land. I hurt with the hurt of my people. I mourn and overcome with grief. If only my head were a pool of water and my eyes a fountain of tears, I would weep day and night 
for all my people who have been slaughtered. I read that text in the quietness of being alone at this camp and it hit me in the gut. That this was the heart that I did not have for the guys in my cabin. These were guys who were being killed at life. Being killed in their families, being killed in their circumstances, being killed at their schools. I read that text and that day, from that day, I began to pray, God, give me the heart of Jeremiah. Break down my pride, break down my selfishness. And let me care about these 10 guys as much as you care for them. I was the last night of the camp and I was uh, on stage. I was part of the worship band, which all of you should weep with joy that I'm not a part of anymore. I was a part of the worship band. We were on stage leading through worship and I looked out at all the campers gathered in the chapel and I saw my row of 10 guys just goofing off and acting like idiots. (laughs) Something inside of me snapped. I'd been praying this prayer all week that God would give me the heart of Jeremiah and in that moment, something inside me just snapped. Actually, I just walked away from my instrument and I went backstage into this tiny little storage closet and I fell to the ground and I wept and sobbed before Christ in prayer. And I just prayed for the hearts of the guys that had been entrusted to me in the cabin that week. I think that's what Jesus means. When he says, ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers out into the harvest field. I think He's not saying pray that other people would go. He's saying pray first and foremost that God would make you the kind of person who doesn't just look but who sees. Who doesn't just see but who notices. Who doesn't just notice but who cares. Who doesn't just care but who does something. So that God can send you at the right time to the right place to the right people for the right reasons and the right motivations to do the right things in the right community to make people right with God and right with themselves and right with each other and right with the world so that everything can be right the way God wants it to be. And we're going to take some minutes now as the uh, host at your location, the band comes to the stage. We're going to take some minutes right now to pray those kinds of prayers before God for our hearts this morning. Spend this time in prayer.